get back over here where I belong. <laughs> um, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 25 through 32 this morning. And we're going to talk about forgiveness, uh, which um, may seem like an interesting topic to you. Just wait until we get started. Uh, we had a great conversation last week in the home group that meets at the Pope's place um, about forgiveness. And this morning's text was quoted along with other scriptures. And um, there's more in the paragraph that we're going to look at this morning than the subject of forgiveness. So we're actually going to come back to it again. Um, but it, it seemed like an opportune time to talk about the topic. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, we're in a spot in Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he has already laid out Kind of the, the glorious gospel of reconciliation. That's what the gospel is about, reconciliation. It's about love. And now he's uh, talking about the implications of the gospel for our lives and for our relationships, particularly uh, our relationships with each other in the church. So being part of the church here, apparently it's a significant enough thing that um, you're, you're going to spend time together in relationship more than just kind of um, smiling and shaking hands uh, once a week, keeping it on maybe a superficial level. More, more than that, uh, but real integration into each other's lives. Life together um, is what it means to be in the church, which will inevitably involve conflict and tension, friction, unfortunately, things like causing each other pain. Right? Um, so, so forgiveness is essential to our community here. Uh, first, I mean, it's essential to our relationship with God. We need his forgiveness. We stand in absolute need of God's forgiveness. And if we don't extend forgiveness to each other, then we won't be able to maintain the unity of the spirit that we've been given as a gift through the gospel. So uh, the church should be populated by forgiven forgivers. Forgiven forgivers. Um, and it sounds really nice until you get down to what forgiveness really means, which is what we should do as we consider our text uh, here this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, there are a lot of barriers in our hearts to um, knowing who you really are, knowing what our relationship with you is really like, knowing who we really are, knowing our great need for the gospel, um, knowing the ways in which the gospel would change our lives. We, we resist every step of the way, it seems. And so we pray that by your love and by your grace and by your Holy Spirit at work in us, you would overcome the resistance in us to um, knowing you, knowing your love, knowing forgiveness, and being changed by it into the likeness of Christ. We pray that you would overcome that resistance um, for the sake of your kingdom going forward in this world, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion 
that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul here, uh, he's starting to lay out the believer's response to the gospel. This is the way the gospel would change your life if it's really at work in you, if God and his Holy Spirit are really at work in your life. And it's familiar terms that he's using here. Actually, he's starting to talk about the Ten Commandments. Um, The things that he's talking about here and in the passage uh, following, immediately following, these are all kind of the Ten Commandments, basic stuff, right? Again, we'll talk about it more next week, but... You know, one of the unique, unique things about Christianity is that we don't um, have the same kind of mechanism of salvation that the rest of the world does, other world religions or other philosophies. We don't have the same kind of mechanism. We don't obey God in order to get his favor, right? We obey God because he's already shown us his favor that we don't deserve. Um, first, God forgives us. He loves us. He favors us. He gives himself to us for relationship And that grace is what wins us and transforms us and inspires us to live for him. And the Christian, seeking to live for God, then, in response to his grace, uh, looks to God's own commandments about what should characterize his life. And a great summary being found in the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. Ten Commandments kind of sum up uh, the law, the the commandments of God about how we're supposed to live in light of his grace. And now... um, now, Jesus and Paul, both we've seen it uh, several times in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the, the letters, they both summarized these commandments, these Ten Commandments, even further, they summarized them and said, love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. One who loves has kept the whole law, right? Love to God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So all these facets of the Christian life that Paul is talking about here in this paragraph and later, um, all these facets that are kind of reflections of the Ten Commandments, uh, as the Christian is supposed to observe them, um, they're facets of love. They're all facets of love that reflect the one pure love of Jesus Christ himself. And the hardest teaching of Jesus about love, his hardest teaching for us, undoubtedly the hardest, Um, Love in its highest and purest and freest form is the teaching, the Christian teaching about forgiveness. Um, Loving those who hurt you. Loving your enemies. So let's define love very clearly. We need to make an important distinction between kind of what is natural to people like us, actually natural to sinners, uh, and, and what is biblical, like what the natural idea of love is and what the biblical idea of love is, there's a big distinction between those things. In the world, when you say, I love you, we talked about this a little bit last week during communion time anyway, uh, when someone in the world says, I love you, they almost invariably mean, I get something from you. You, you make my life better in, somehow, uh, in, some, in some way. Um, I appreciate something about you. I enjoy something about you. There's something about you that I consume and enjoy, right? 
Uh, that's what it means when it's kind of the natural idea of the world's idea of love is consumption. It's actually consumption. And God's kingdom is utterly different. It's absolutely uh, backwards from that. The one who says, I love you in God's kingdom, like according to the scriptures, Christ's kind of love, the one who says, I love you there, is, uh, is saying, I'll give myself to you. I'm yours. Whether or not you deserve it, whether or not you reciprocate it, I'm giving myself to you. I'll pursue what's best for you. I'll make your interests my own interests. Right? And so forgiveness, then, is loving someone who has hurt you, giving yourself to someone who has hurt you, which by definition is painful. By definition, forgiveness is painful because this person has, has not deserved your love. In fact, uh, they've violated it. Right? They've taken away any reason why uh, you should find any pleasure in them, right? why you should uh, be in that relationship anymore. They, they've made it difficult for you. If you're going to be in that relationship, it's going to be painful for you. Uh, and so forgiveness is the absorbing of pain. Forgiveness is the absorbing of the pain of the violation of the relationship, and it's refusing to let that pain decide your relationship. It's refusing to let that pain embitter you toward that person, refusing to withdraw from that person or distance yourself from that person for their sake. For their sake. And that's not at all easy. Again, by definition, this is painful who signs up for this? This is why it, it is the most difficult of all Christian teachings about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and in fact, it's so difficult, it's impossible for people who are ultimately self-centered. Right? Self-centered people, um, in and of ourselves, we have no reason to endure such pain. Right? When our whole lives are centered around things like the avoidance of pain or the obtaining of our own comforts or the amassing of our own pleasures or our own supremacy, our own security. You know? We want to remove risk and remove pain from our lives. That's what self-centered people do. Right? In and of ourselves, we have no resources, not just no reason, but no resources to be able to forgive when people hurt us, to be able to overcome the, that self-protective instinct in ourselves and truly love the offender for their sake. We just don't have the resources if all we have is just the self-centered self. So we need to be changed so that the center of our being, what's really at the core of who we are, is the impulse to love freely. To love, to give ourselves independently of the person's worthiness. Independently of the person's sin. Right? That's what forgiveness is. We need to be changed to be able to do that from the inside out. C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> I read a couple of um, chapters of a few of his books uh, recently this week. He has, a, he has chapters on forgiveness in both mere Christianity and the weight of glory, both of which are really great uh, to read. You, you probably have those books at home. Uh, you should go read them. Um, but in his chapter on forgiveness in the weight of glory, he says this, Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing. 
But I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you. And everything between us two will be exactly as it was before. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that's left over without any excuse, after all allowances have been made, and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. That and only that is forgiveness, and that we can always have from God if we ask for it. So he's on to something there, very important with that last little bit. Right? That kind of forgiveness we can always have from God if we ask for it. When we're talking about forgiveness, first and foremost, above all else, we're talking about something God does before it's something that we do or are supposed to do. We're talking about something that we need from God. And that's a big deal. Jesus talks about this a lot in the Gospels. And this is a fairly long passage I'll break up a little bit with some comments. But in Matthew 18, Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Peter thinks he's uh, being fairly generous here in Judaism, apparently. Apparently, three times, forgiving someone three times was a big deal, and you could pretty much establish that you were a very gracious person if you forgive someone, if you've forgiven someone three times, right? You can imagine somebody sins against you maybe in the same way three times. Yes, I will forgive you. So that's pretty good, right? Judaism says three. Peter asks, seven? All right, this is kind of the perfect number. He's being pretty liberal here, right, with his forgiveness, what Jesus says to him. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's like saying seven times infinity, <laughs> right? These days, that's, that's what we would say. And then he tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So if you have a study Bible, you can kind of see what this works out to. Um, A talent was 20 years wages for a laborer. So if you work it out, it's like 15 bucks an hour. It's something like $6 billion. $6 billion in today's currency that this servant owes the king. It's enormous. It's it's immeasurable, basically. Nobody has this kind of money. Right. how he racked up that much debt is, it's incredible to consider. But it says in verse 25 of uh, Matthew 18, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. And that was normal in the ancient world. You owed a big debt, you couldn't pay it, you get sold until you pay it off. Right? Um, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. And I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is like fifteen thousand dollars. It's significant. It's significant. It's pretty serious debt, but it's really nothing compared to what he owed the king. And seizing him, he began to choke him 
saying, pay what you owe. So he's angry. He's seeking what really is kind of rightfully his. He's seeking to extract it. He's angry about it, uh, to extract his own. And already there, he demonstrates a lack of mercy. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. So here he should have realized that that's exactly the same language that he used with the king, and the king forgave him his debt. But he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus said, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, from your heart. It's pretty strong words from Jesus here. He could have taken a more positive tack, right? Could have said, the, the sweetness, the mercy of my Father will make you a sweet and merciful type of person if it's really a work in your life, right? But he says, my Father will do this to every one of you if you do not forgive from your heart, right? uh, Apparently, his disciples need something more like a stark wake-up call on what it means to be forgiving. He's teaching us in this parable the immense magnitude immense magnitude of our own debt in God's sight. You cannot even fathom the offense of your sin against God. It's incalculable. It's incomparably greater than any offense that anyone might offer to you. Any sin against you is almost laughable in comparison with our sin against God, one sin against God, one personal offense against God that we commit. And you are entirely unable to pay what you owe God You're unable to pay it back. It's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous to think that you could. And so you need a reality check. And Jesus teaches then, even for for people like this this servant who, um, he didn't really ask for forgiveness. He just asked for a little lenience, right? Give me time and I'll pay this back. It's laughable. He can't pay that back. But the incredible, unbelievable mercy of the king the unbelievable mercy of God, who would forgive such a debt as that? Again, the servant doesn't ask to be forgiven. He asked more time to pay back, but the master pitied him and released him and forgave the debt, and he ate the loss. He ate the loss, right? He bore it. With God, we're not just talking about owing and forgiving monetary debt, obviously. It's a parable. It's an analogy. We're talking about creatures, finite creatures, wanting to dethrone the God of the universe. We're talking about cosmic revolt, cosmic treason, insolent rebellion, infinite violation of the most glorious relationship. That's what you're talking about with sin. It's a personal offense against a glorious God. And yet, even though our pleas for mercy are usually pretty poor excuses for asking forgiveness, it's Poor excuse for asking forgiveness. 
Um, and even though we, we continue to sin against God every day, even after we know our forgiveness, we add to our already incalculable debt every day. God forgives nonetheless. And forgiveness isn't just some kind of waving of the hand, crumpling up a piece of paper, sweeping it under the rug, ignoring the great offense of our sin, writing it off. God himself suffered unimaginably when he forgave our sins. God himself suffered because God the Son, that's who Jesus is. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God himself who went to the cross. He came, he was entirely surrounded by people his whole life, who would use him or abuse him or destroy him if they got the chance in order to accomplish their own goals. In their self-centeredness, they would destroy God himself. Surrounded by these people, and still he came. Still he came. He had people plotting to kill him, and still he went forward in love. He had a friend conspire to betray him, one of his closest friends, to betray him to his death, and still he went forward. And he was abandoned by everybody. And still he went forward. And he was tortured and humiliated and mocked. And still he went forward. And he was crucified and reviled and still. Still he went forward. And at any point in that process, he could have legitimately said could have legitimately and righteously and justly said, look, I've tried to have patience with you people. I've tried forgiving you, but this is, this is pure evil. He could have said, you know, it just wouldn't be really healthy for me to continue in this relationship anymore. He could have said, enough is enough. I can't tolerate anymore. You're just not worth it. And he would have been speaking the truth. But he he continued to give himself. He went all the way. And as he hung there on the cross, dying at the hands of those into whose hands he committed himself, he gave himself up to these people for the sake of love, and he was dying at their hands, and he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So now we know what real forgiveness is. Because Jesus came and did this, now we know what real forgiveness is. And some might accuse Jesus of weakness, but it was true power. It was true power to give himself. He went all the way to the cross, and it was not weakness. Some might say Jesus was emotionally unhealthy, It was his freedom, his absolute freedom to love and give himself. And so his pursuit, um, his pursuit, his ultimate goal was full reconciliation with those who would and did kill him. Not just to write something off and let the, let the relationship be neutral, but full reconciliation. And if you enjoy peace with God, if you are called his son or daughter, if you are welcome into a joyful, never-ending relationship with him, it is because God in Christ forgave you like this and bore the pain, bore the loss 
bore the relational pain of your personal offenses against him. He bore it. He ate it instead of dishing it back to you like you deserved. Right? You didn't deserve his forgiveness. You deserved justice. And you'll never know what it cost him. You'll actually never know what it cost Jesus to do this. You'll never perfectly repent in this life. You're going to need his forgiveness tomorrow. And he's provided that once and for all. It is a done deal. And now God doesn't just tolerate you. He rejoices over you. Scriptures make that clear. He doesn't protect himself from further harm and hold you at a distance. I forgive you, but you know, this relationship is not going to be the same as it was before. He doesn't do that. He pledged himself to you forever, and he took up residence in your own heart by his spirit. The great forgiver lives in you, and because of that, because of that relationship, because of his closeness, because his life is in your life, there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no harm that's done to you that you may not forgive. Now, if you look at someone and say, I can't forgive you, you don't deserve my forgiveness, you're saying that somehow you believe that you do? Forgiveness is for the deserving, maybe? This person doesn't qualify, but you do? It means you have no idea what his grace means for you, what his mercy toward you really is, or your absolute need of it. If there's someone that you won't forgive, how is it that you can recite the creed, the Apostles' Creed, which we'll say in a minute, which states, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Whose sins? Only mine. Maybe the offender didn't beg forgiveness in a satisfactory way where you could know they were really suffering the pain of it. Maybe they didn't do that. Which one of us does that? Which one of us has truly and humbly confessed to God and asked forgiveness and really understood what we were doing when we asked his mercy? We were imposing on him to suffer for us so that we could avoid that suffering. Which one of us has done that perfectly? We're more like Joseph's brothers, right? The Old Testament reading. Joseph's brothers had beaten him, thrown him in a pit, sold him into slavery. He had a miserable life because of them in in so many ways. The relational offense they'd caused against him, they lied to protect themselves. They say, now that dad's dead, he's the only one that stood between us and Joseph's wrath. We'd better figure out a way to get Joseph to forgive us. We'll make something up. We'll lie to him because we're scared for ourselves, right? This is not a good confession of sin. They're not really even asking for forgiveness appropriately. Um, But Joseph wept for them, and he forgave them. It's like the servant who just asked for a little bit of lenience. We don't ask for forgiveness knowing what we're really asking for. None of us does, so we can't expect it of others. Maybe the offender hasn't repented yet, right? Did God wait for our repentance to send his son to the cross for us to forgive us our sins? Did he wait for our repentance to do that? Was there anyone in the world who had truly turned away from his sin before the suffering servant went to the cross? Maybe their repentance can't be trusted. They've done this before. 
They've hurt me before in the same way, and that I just can't trust that they're actually repenting here. Did the Spirit wait until we had stopped sinning to enter into our hearts? Or does he dwell there in a heart that still sins every day? He's given himself to us. Is God just a gullible idiot to give himself to us this way? Is he, uh, is he a gullible idiot to, tr- to entrust himself to you and enter into your life and never leave it, even though your repentance is mostly a sham? Jesus said in Luke 17, you pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You're, You're reinstating your brother every time you forgive him. You're reinstating him to position of brother. That is, you're back in a position where you could hurt me again to do that same thing seven times in a day. Um, maybe their sin was just too great. Maybe that offender's sin is too, too great, too much pain to absorb. Did Jesus get down off the cross because the pain was too great? Because it was overwhelming? The pain of your sin against him, it was too much, and he didn't come down. And again, I'm not saying this is easy. Don't hear me saying this is easy. <laughs> this is the hardest thing imaginable, and it's the whole point. Forgiveness, by definition, is suffering. Suffering love. It's painful. It's normal for Jesus' disciples to balk at this. He talked about it all the time. They said to him, this kind of thing is just too much, right? How could you expect this from us? He said we would need to pray about this a lot. He actually said we need to wrestle through, through it a lot in prayer. He said, <clears throat> as he's teaching his disciples how to pray, as we pray almost every week, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He said at the end of that prayer, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There needs to be a connection between our understanding of God's grace to us and the way that we extend grace to other people. Um, Again, in the the home group last week, great conversation that we had. Kind of started off, Joe, Joe asked us the question, you know, imagine, think of someone that you need to forgive. All right, let's put the, let's get the rubber meat in the road here. Think of someone that you need to forgive in your life. And if, if you were like me, you actually had a hard time thinking of it, right? You're probably reluctant to think of it. We think we'd rather, um, we'd rather avoid thinking about the people that we need to forgive, even hide it from ourselves because the pain is too great and the anger is too great and we don't know what to do with it, right? Um, it's a safe bet you probably have a lot of people that you you might need to, to forgive and extend grace to a lot more than you think you might, right? Um, but one of the ways to, to kind of think, like, break past those barriers internally and, and think of, like, who do I need to forgive? It's like, who do you avoid? Right? Who do you not want to imagine dealing with when you encounter that person? You, you get away from them because they've hurt you in some way, right? Imagine if you meet that person, someone who's done you great harm, 
Imagine if you meet them, someone you need to forgive, and you start to become aware of the bitterness and the pain and just lack of goodwill that you have toward them in general. And imagine, like, where they are in life. And you, could, you could imagine this is how uh, unforgiveness works itself into these kinds of relationships. If, if that person is doing badly in life, if they're suffering some loss or financial hurdles or whatever, and they've hurt you really bad and you encounter them in a state where they're not doing very well, what's your tendency going to be? It's going to be towards satisfaction. You know what? Good. They, They probably deserve that. They probably deserve that suffering. That's probably an indicator that you haven't really forgiven them. Right? Or if they're aggressive, if they're an aggressive person, and you avoid them out of disgust or out of fear, it might be an indicator that you haven't forgiven that person. Or if they're doing well in life, they look like they've got things together. You would resent them. And you'd look for minds. Your minds would be racing for ways in which you could convince yourself that really you're better than they are. You resent them for their apparent success. That's a good indicator that you haven't really forgiven them. What if they apologize and ask for your forgiveness? Then, then what? Then you're encountered face-to-face with this very difficult task of forgiving and loving your enemy. Your reluctance would probably be exposed in a moment like that, right? Whatever your response is, there's inner turmoil. Whatever your response is, whether it's a good or bad response to seeing that person that you need to forgive, there's going to be pain. There's going to be pain in that relationship You're all torn up on the inside, but one of those responses, the response of forgiveness, that pain, that's healing love. That's healing love. That's choosing the way of love that heals. Several weeks ago, uh, we all heard about it in the news, um, tragedy in Charleston, South Carolina, where I think it was nine um, members of an African-American church were in a prayer meeting. This white guy came in, uh, racially motivated, um, hate crime, uh, killed, killed nine members of the church. One of them, I think uh, there was another that survived. Uh, these people had welcomed him in, and he gunned them down. And um, the next day, the very next day, the, the children of one of these women who had died The two teenage children were being interviewed by the news the very day after they had lost their mother. And they said, we already forgive him for what he's done. And there's nothing but love from us. Love is stronger than hate. We are going to heal through love. And you could tell the reporter had no idea what to do with that. Obviously stunned, kind of stumbled, like, there's going to be a lot of viewers who don't understand what you mean. You forgive the man who murdered your mother yesterday. Yeah. The world is broken. And the main problem with it is that humanity does not love. Not really. The main problem with the world is that humanity 
has chosen the way of self-love and does not truly love. But, but Christ is truly loved in spite of all. He's truly loved in spite of all, and our Christ-like forgiveness is just that, loving in spite of all. I'm not advocating for something that on the surface looks like forgiveness, but really is just staying in some kind of an abusive relationship that is codependent, right? unhealthy. Um, but that's not love. That's why I'm not advocating for that. It's because it's not really love. It's not really forgiveness. It's just hanging in there to see what I can maybe get out of this relationship someday. And that's destructive for everybody. It's destructive for the offender and the one who's been sinned against. Christ-like forgiveness is entirely different. The emotionally healthiest person in the universe let his enemies take his life in order to forgive them and love them and welcome them. So if you could look at the one who has hurt you and say... You have no excuse. What you did to me was evil. It was wrong and it hurt. I don't need you. I'd be well within my rights to walk away from this relationship. I'm actually free from you. I don't need anything from you. But I'm going to bear the pain that you've caused me and I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to pursue your full restoration. I'm going to hope that you can become human I'm going to pity you because it must be miserable to be the kind of person who hurts people like that. That's Christ-like forgiveness. And that is impossible for self-protective people to do, self-centered people to do. You can only do it in Christ through the power of his spirit who lives in you. And really, you you should do it with support of others in the church, right? Um, You're not alone in trying to forgive people who are impossible to forgive. You're not alone in that. We're here for each other for that. We're here to uphold each other with biblical counsel, with practical help, right? Uh, With constant prayer. There should be legal consequences for sin. There should be real consequences for sin. And we should seek to protect the vulnerable from the vicious. But the Christian has spiritual resources even to risk his own life. His own life to forgive people who hurt him, to remain kind, as the text says, to remain tender-hearted. Your life is open to the person that you're trying to forgive, to those who hurt you, whether that's uh, forgiving people for big things they've done or the more common daily offenses we suffer. Uh, C.S. Lewis, again, in one of those passages on forgiveness, says, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've all forfeited our rights to love. Every one of us. We've forfeited our rights to being loved, but the gospel says that that's when true love has its brightest, clearest shape. In Christ, we're free to give ourselves in forgiving love to those who don't deserve it. So let the whole world marvel at such love, at at such a God who loves like this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we sang earlier, forgive our sins as we forgive 
You taught us, Lord, to pray, but you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. Your forgiveness is otherworldly. Your forgiveness is beyond our comprehension. We don't even know how to ask rightly for it. But we pray that your forgiveness, the knowledge of your great love, the great love with which you've loved us in giving your son Jesus for us to reconcile us to yourself, we pray that that would drive itself down deeper into our hearts and make us truly merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. We know that this will cause us pain as we endure the pain that's caused by others in relationship with them. We pray that you would keep us clear-minded about what it is we're doing when we forgive, how it is that we're to love and give ourselves to others who don't deserve it, how it is to interact with people who need to be transformed by your love and by your grace, people who are prone to hurt and hurt again. We pray that you would help us to be forgiven forgivers for the sake of your kingdom and your gospel going forth in all of our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.